Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The UN Security Council is to meet after Palestinian officials say over 100 people were killed when Israel opened fire in northern Gaza. We discuss if Dublin is finally on track to build a metro or, or the plans set to go off the rails. Plus charges are dropped for Irish citizen Yasser El Jabouri after a brief detention in Iraq. We speak tonight to his wife, Laura. to a developing story tonight and President Michael D. Higgins has been taken to hospital after he complained of feeling unwell. An ambulance arrived at Oris Anukthoron earlier this evening and the President was assessed by paramedics. He was then transferred to hospital as a precaution. And we'll bring you more in on that story if we get it throughout the programme. Now, according to the Hamas-run health ministry, at least 112 Palestinians who were awaiting aid in northern Gaza have been killed after Israeli troops opened fire. An Israeli military source stated that shots were fired as a crowd moved towards them, endangering the troops. Well, this comes as officials in Gaza revealed that 30,000 Palestinians have been killed since the war began in October. And joining me to discuss this further is Channel 4 News Europe editor Matt Fry. Matt, you're very welcome along uh, to the programme tonight and thanks for being with us. As we said, there are officials in Gaza saying more than 100 Palestinians were killed by Israeli soldiers who fired on crowds who were seeking aid just outside um, Gaza Strip. Gaza uh, City, and it's happened on the day that the death toll, as we say, has reached more than 30,000, according uh, to officials there. What's been the response to this incident? Because we've had counterclaim um, from the IDF on this, a major loss of civilian life against a desperate backdrop. Well, I mean, the context of, of this horrific event, and of course there have been so many, and the milestone of 30,000 casualties is horrific in its own right. The context is that we, we, you know, organizations, news organizations in the UK have written a letter to the Israeli and Egyptian ambassadors, basically asking to be let into Gaza for the first time since the beginning of this war, so that we can better understand what's going on on the ground. And we can talk about that in a minute. But in the absence of, of our eyes and ears on the ground, we're relying on secondhand um, sources. And essentially what they're saying from the Palestinian side is that the Israelis opened up fire on a, a very large group. You saw some of the images there from uh, the drone, a very large group of desperate civilians. Um, some of the 300,000 or so Gazan civilians who are still left in the north of the Gaza Strip, we kind of assumed that the place had been emptied out once the Israelis took over, but actually there are still lots of people there and they are in a particularly dire uh, situation. They've not been given um, much aid. 
whenever a World Food Programme convoy tries to get through, it, it has been unsuccessful in recent weeks. So they're really desperate. And this, this convoy did get through at 5 a.m. this morning. Um, obviously, they had been alerted that this food would arrive, a crowd formed. And then the question is whether the Israelis shot uh, uh, at these civilians as they were trying to get hold of food uh, because they felt threatened, whether they shot at them because they felt like shooting at them, or whether there was so much chaos in the, you know, in this sort of desperate scramble for aid, for food and water and whatever else on these trucks that, you know, it just got out of hand, basically. And of course, in that sort of situation, things can get very desperate. And again, one of the bones of contention is, did most of the people who died, and I think there seems to be very little debate about how many died, I think it's about, about 110 at the last count, mm -hmm. did they die because they were shot? as some of the hospital sources, Palestinian hospital sources are claiming, or did they die because they were trampled on by, by other people in the crowd who were desperately trying to get away from the firing? I think the main the, the takeaway, something that we that is not being disputed, I think, even by the Israelis, is that the humanitarian situation is utterly desperate, and under those circumstances, chaos will ensue. And then the backdrop of all of this is also, you know, this push for a ceasefire that we're hearing about. And Joe Biden last weekend being quite confident that there would be a ceasefire by this weekend. Hamas said what's happened now has jeopardised any prospect of that. Where are the talks that are being brokered by the US, Qatar and Egypt at now? And, you know, is it true to say that all of this is hugely complicated um, matters and, and leaves the idea of any sort of humanitarian pause or stop and fighting a long way off? I'm not so sure about that. It might even hasten um, some sort of ceasefire. What I did hear uh, last night was that the ceasefire talks were in trouble um, because you know Hamas and the Israelis aren't aligned, to put it mildly, and they're still miles apart on the terms of the ceasefire. So one of the issues, for instance, is the length of that pause. Hamas obviously wants it to be longer. The Israelis want it to be shorter. I think Hamas is asking for three months. The Israelis have offered a month. Um, the Israelis say they can't give them more than a month because that would allow Hamas to regroup. Hamas says, you know, one month isn't long enough because we need to basically provide basic services and, and, and just get some of the sort of most rudimentary functioning of what's left of the Gaza Strip up and running. Uh, then there's another issue about which prisoners should be exchanged. Hamas wants some of the prisoners exchanged on the kind of prisoner list, people held inside Israel, who the Israelis have vowed never to give up because they've been involved in fighting in the past. Uh, Hamas wants them back. Uh, the Israelis say, no, you can't have them. So th these bones of contention have been around for months. You know, this, is, this is an issue that was ironed out sort of in the last brief ceasefire back in December, I think it was, beginning of December, and they've surfaced again. But the situation has become more desperate since that last ceasefire, another 17,000 people have been killed since that last ceasefire. The, the humanitarian situation on the, situation on the ground has become deplorable. And since that last ceasefire, hardly any of the 36 hospitals originally operating in the Gaza Strip have been left to function. Now, Matt, you mentioned there um, at the start of this interview that you were among 55 journalists who signed a letter urging the Israeli authorities and the Egyptian authorities as well to lift a blockade and let foreign reporters into Gaza. What's been their reasoning behind not letting any international journalists 
in since uh, the beginning of this war. There have been a few trips where journalists have arrived in embedded with the IDF, but, but no independent, uh, I suppose, journalism allowed to take place. Sure. I mean, the IDF trips, and there have been a couple, um, are very controlled. You know, you have to then give them your material, whatever you've shot, they, to give that to the censor, to the Israeli censor. They look through the material. They don't check your script. They don't censor your script, but they do censor your pictures in case there's anything that they regard as militarily sensitive for their own side. Um, the people who have been on these trips have said they were not allowed to speak to anyone at all on the Palestinian side, whether they are you know, suspected Hamas fighters, which would be unlikely anyway, or Palestinian civilians. So it's not real reporting. It's a, it's a heavily controlled, embedded trip. And I know there was a lot of agonizing in my organization and others whether we should even go on these trips because they don't give you the full picture. But in the absence of that, you know, we've had no access at all. I mean, we rely very heavily on some extremely courageous Palestinian journalists who have stayed in the Gaza Strip, who have been stuck in the Gaza Strip, many of whom have lost family members, many of whom have been killed. I mean, it's about 100 Palestinian journalists who have been killed since the beginning of this war, which is an astonishing number. But they are our eyes and ears on the ground. And of course, Israel is strange here because on one hand, they are incredibly open and, and willing for us to talk to them. So every day we would get a call from someone in the Israeli government saying, who do you want on today? You know, do you want Mark Regev or um, one of the other spokesmen to come onto the program and maybe we can offer you someone from the IDF? And we'd say, that's fantastic. Thank you very much. And we would love to do an accountability interview with one of your officials. But also what we really want is access to the Gaza Strip so we can do what we always do in these situations, which is to report. Because at the moment we're relying on, you know, our, our very trusted Palestinian colleagues, but you you often describe what they say mm. as slanted. And, and they obviously think that what you're saying is slanted. So the only way to mitigate against that is for us to be on the ground and do what we always do. Now, we don't always get access to war zones. You know, you can't go into Myanmar and report freely. They won't let you in. You can go in as a tourist, but it's dangerous. Mm. You can't go into Sudan easily at the moment. You can't go to North Korea. That, that's all true. And, but at the same time, the Israelis are strange because they're playing a double game. On one hand, they're very open with information they want you to receive from their side. And they are extremely uh, closeted when it comes to events in the Gaza Strip. And until, until we get that access, and as you say, there are quite a few of us who've asked for it, until we get that access, either from the Egyptians or the Israelis, and they, they both have to agree with each other to let us in, I think it's going to be very difficult to carry on reporting this war. All right, Matt Fry, Europe Editor with Channel 4 News. Thank you for joining us tonight on the programme. It's a pleasure. Well, news of the loss of life outside Gaza City um, sparked a debate in the Dáil today. And joining me to discuss that and more is Fianna Fáil Senator and Leader of the Shannad Lisa Chambers and People Before Profit TD Paul Murphy. And joining us down the line tonight is Executive Director at Amnesty International USA, Paul O'Brien. And um, you're all very welcome along to the programme. Um, Israel has been accused of denying aid to a starving population and what we heard from Sinn Féin's Matt Carthy, he put it to the Thornish, the um, Lisa Chambers, if, if Micheál Martin accepted what is happening in Gaza is genocide. Yeah, look, I think this is um, 
we're, we're running out of words to describe what we're watching unfold since October 7th. Um, but the Irish government have been consistent and clear since day one. We have called for peace, for a ceasefire, and we've maintained our position for a two-state solution. That has remained unchanged. And I've listened to numerous debates since that point between the Dáil and the Shannon, where I've heard opposition leaders acknowledge that the government have been strong on this. So this is not an issue that divides Ireland. We are united in our support for Palestine and for a ceasefire. And I'm not sure why some politicians are seeking to sow divisions here and to try and whip up anger and emotion on what is already an, an issue that is really upsetting people, um, to try and make people more angry and upset here and trying to tell people that their government isn't doing enough because that's just not the case. Last week, our government, our Attorney General, presented Ireland's case to the ICG Advisory Council, and we put forward our case that we believe Israel... Yeah, that, that's been a long-running case. Well, that, it was, that, was prior, it, that was prior to but, but our appearance, know, October appear 7th and the aftermath. But even still, the appearance of the Attorney General last week putting forward Ireland's case that we believe there have been breaches of international law by Israel. So we've been very strong. Mm -hmm. And also the Taoiseach and the, um, along with Spain, Ireland and Spain have written a letter to Ursula von der Leyen at an EU level looking for the Israel-EU agreement to be reviewed immediately to see if there have been breaches. So okay. we have been leading on this. And I think to see Sinn Féin try to, to, to stir up emotion and anger to try and sow division, um, when, at the, when, the, when at the outset of this, their links to Hamas and those that they associate with uh, were very much front and centre, which they've oh, kind of pulled back from. So, sorry, uh, Lisa, just to, to clarify what you said there, you, you were saying that Sinn Féin has links to Hamas? Prior to all of this, that was accepted, that there were links, that, that there was communication. But I think at the very outset... What sort of communication was, was this... Uh, where they engaged with, probably was a government leader, in at a public the Gaza event, Strip yes. at, a, at a public meeting. There was a meeting, an online meeting as well. Could so you? Was, I, mean, I mean, does that amount to links to Hamas? Well, I think the point I'm making is that... I'm saying that because look, we don't have Sinn Féin here to, to counter that. No, absolutely. That. I know that's your, your job is to put those questions back. My point is that on an issue where the Irish public are united, where the government is doing everything it can to advocate for the people right. of Palestine. To try and sow division in this country, I think, is the wrong approach. And I think Ireland has led from the front on this. We have used our voice okay. for a mandate at a UN all level, right. at an EU level. I think we are all in agreement that we, what, what is happening is apparent and we want to see a ceasefire now. But all right, OK. Sorry, I want to just get Paul in on this. Um, are we seeing real, you know, uh, dis disagreement between, you know, what you're saying and what the government is saying on this? And what do you say to that charge of political opportunism? The government is displaying scandalous moral cowardice on the issue of Palestine. They refuse, Neil Martin today refused to call it genocide. When the people of Palestine are being starved and when they gather to try and get food, they're being mowed down. They refuse to call it genocide. They refused to state clearly that they will join the case by South Africa in the International Court of Justice just, against just on, Israel. Just on that, because I know that was, that was a charge that McCarthy um, certainly put to Micheál Martin, which he said, we have not failed to intervene in any case. Uh, South Africa itself has not filed mm -hmm. the memorial on that case yet, and they will do that in two or three months' time, and, and that there is a process underway there. Yeah, but... The, the Irish government refuses to state, as Germany has stated, Germany has stated, we're going to intervene on the side of Israel. The Irish government refuses to do that. And what instead they did is they put a motion, an amendment before the Dáil to get the Dáil to vote, to ask the government to strongly consider intervening. They have refused 
to expel the Israeli ambassador. The Taoiseach plans to go over on March 17th to hand over a bowl of shamrock to Joe Biden, who is funding okay. and supporting this genocide. So what we have had from the government is words, and words that are certainly better than the words of Ursula von der Leyen, or Joe Biden, or Rishi Sunak, absolutely. But we have had a so complete absence of action. So you don't accept, Paul, that on a world stage that we have stood up and we have, we have condemned um, what, what is happening in Gaza and condemned Israel for Com that? Compared to Europe, compared to the US, the Irish government has said better things, correct. Right. But it is not acted. Okay. And, and, and you can contrast it, for example, with in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Okay. Micheál Martin called that genocide. The Irish government expelled diplomats. We imposed sanctions. What was the difference? The difference is that the US opposes Russia's oh, invasion right. of okay, Ukraine while it supports Israel's genocide. That's why the Irish government refuses to take any action. Lisa, just to bring you in on this, you said there's no points of difference between what you're saying and what's being said in the opposition benches. We can see from what Paul is saying that there are, there are strong differences in well, how this should be approached. I think there are, I think we're united in our condemnation of what's happening in Gaza. We are united in our call for a ceasefire and we are united in our call for peace and a two-state solution. So that's what I think we're, and that's the fundamentals. In terms of the South African case at the ICJ, the Irish government has said it will look at the, the findings of the court and it will intervene if it is appropriate. It, it will consult with South Africa on that. And it, it's also the case, and Paul will so, might acknowledge this. So that's a case not, of making a call on this in a couple of months' but time. It's not, it's not usual for states to intervene until the applicant, in this case South Africa, published its memorial. So and we it hasn't done that. It's not that you can't, it's just not the usual process. So we are following the process right. that has always been followed. In relation to the, okay. the point made by Paul in relation to the US, of course, our Taoiseach will travel to the US on St. Patrick's Day and our ministers will travel across the globe to represent our country and our people and to make sure that we are front and centre on that day right. because it's of benefit to Ireland. And okay. to suggest that we shouldn't do that, I think, is just because outrageous. We should do everything in our and power we are. to stop and a genocide. We no, we're doing absolutely we nothing. That's we're doing not nothing. Right. I want to work. bring in Paul O'Brien now. Disgrace. I want to bring in Paul O'Brien from um, um, Amnesty USA. Uh, and you, you might have heard um, some of that discussion, Paul specifically actually talking about Leo Varadkar, who will be heading over to the White House on St. Patrick's Day. Um, from your viewpoint, um, being over amnesty in the US, you know, what message do you think he should be bringing to Joe Biden? And will that message have real traction there? Um, so the message needs to be strong. And yes, I believe it will uh, have traction because of uh, the time we are in, because of uh, President Biden's particular relationship to, to Ireland. He takes a lot of pride in it. Um, and the fact is, uh, he's in a, a real dilemma now. He has singularly failed to, uh, to represent uh, appropriately what he said when he campaigned, the human rights concerns of the United States uh, in how he is engaged with Gaza. He has treated them first and foremost as an ally that he's not willing to bring a stick towards. Uh, and as a consequence, Israel has had a fairly uh, free hand in how it's conducted itself, and we're seeing the ramifications of that. For Ireland, which considers itself an ally of the United States to go and not bring, and I do think it's brought a strong moral voice to the world stage uh, on Gaza, but to not bring a sense that sometimes allies have to hold each other accountable and, 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 and make that message firmly heard so that 
President Biden understands uh, not just the moral authority of the point we make, but the political consequences of it. And in these moments in the United States, that matters. All right. And do you believe it can have influence? Well, I, it's been very hard. I mean, you've got you've got a president here who, when before thirty thousand had died, was uh, but we had and twenty thousand of those are women and children. We were in the tens of thousands. He was describing uh, the Israeli response as you know, over the top, and that was as far as he got in criticizing. Uh, the Israelis. People here believe that it is President Biden, that the advice he's getting is that he needs to show a much firmer hand to Netanyahu and he needs to do it publicly. Um, but he's still refusing to do it. Um, he, he's got to hear from more people why that that's not just the right thing to do, um, but it's very important for our world. The way that the United States shows up on human rights concerns sends a signal to everyone. And what he's failing to do now is is absolutely catastrophic for people in Gaza, but it's going to have far, far greater consequences uh, for our world and the world that President Biden says he claims about. Okay, Paul. So, uh, he claims yeah. Okay, Paul, I just want to um, get your reaction um, to the incident, um, the appalling situation in which over 100 people were killed and they're saying 700 others wounded. Um, outside Gaza City when aid trucks arrived and Palestinian officials saying that Israeli troops fired on people. We've got condemnation from the UN Secretary General and denials from Israel all throughout the day. What's your assessment of what happened and, and do you believe that this amounts to a war crime? Well, yes, but let me say, we I've been talking to humanitarians all day about this for similar reasons to the journalistic concerns you had earlier. There is limited access, but there's no doubt in any minds of anyone that I spoke to today. First, the numbers, and it's not just the 110 confirmed fatalities, but hundreds and hundreds. I've heard everything from 700 to 1,000 in terms of uh, wounded, many of them fatally. So we will see the fatality numbers. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Rising in the days ahead. There's no doubt that whether it was uh, caused by the perceived fears of the Israeli militaries as people went to get food uh, and, and some were hurt as they sought to get food or whether they were directly shot. This is a direct consequence of the way that Israel is conducting this conflict. In northern Gaza, children are showing up in hospitals and dying of malnutrition. It's been increasingly reported over the, these last days. Food is being weaponized. The lack of food is becoming 
a, a life and death issue now across the board. So when you bring people together in the hope of getting too little food too late, and then there are incidences, Israel as an occupying force is responsible for all of the lives on the ground there. Mm -hmm. So they're responsible one way or the other, whether they shot them directly or they created the conditions under which people died. Israel needs to be held to account for this, and there needs to be a full investigation of the manner in which this happened. A month ago, the International Court of Justice said and laid out the conditions that Israel needed to comply with in order to avoid the risk of an impending genocide. It has complied with none of those. And today is yet another incident that demonstrates that. Um, yeah, th thanks for that, Paul. Uh, that is the point that has been made about you know, the ICJ and in there, I suppose it was a preliminary ruling or they had six orders to Israel, among them allowing aid in unhindered in order to prevent genocide. Given the starvation levels we're seeing and the fact that aid is simply not getting through to people, UN officials say there has been no aid delivered by them, by their agencies, in a month to northern Gaza. Um, what do you believe Israel is doing about those orders that have been issued to them from the ICJ? When we look at what Israel is doing and how they're conducting their offensive in Gaza, they are murdering people, they are butchering people, people have been displaced three, four and five times, they've been funneled towards Rafa, they've been told to move again. My view and the view I think of most reasonable people is that they need to be brought to justice and these crimes investigated and that will happen. And Ireland has been one of the few countries, I think, that has really stood out from the crowd in terms of the, our language. And language but matters what, what at, do we do at a now? Like, so what, because what there is, is that frustration that... Um, you know, investigations will come and they'll come down the line and even in the ICG, CJ case in the case that South Africa is taking, that that, that case will take years. Well, what forward. Ireland is so, doing so now... What happens and like, right now? Be, let's be honest about what Ireland can do and our, and our limitations as a small country. We're using our, 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 our voice at an EU level. We've called for sanctions for the occupying forces in the West Bank. We're looking for a review of trade between the EU and Israel. We're putting pressure on the US as best we can. And we've continued to fund UNRWA when other countries have pulled back. So everything we can do as a small island, as a member of the EU, we, we, we are doing everything Are we, we assessing can. how we will use these, these global trips? Because there's a minister, I don't, I, I, dozens of, of trips taking place right around the globe. As happens every year. By, um, by members of government, as, as happens every year. But is there, is there you know, political impetus to, to send a message on this in, in the cities that you're visiting and the governments can, you're meeting? If, if we can take the examples set by our ministers since October 7th, every opportunity we have had to advocate for peace and a ceasefire, mm. we have taken it and we will continue right. to do that. But Ireland is only one country in this and everything we can do, we are doing and we will do. And Israel, that... It, Hold Israel have Israel has it's, committed war crimes, it is not true. and they will be prosecuted for it what is they not have done. True and it is, but that we are Paul, doing just, everything not, just, we can. You're not being reasonable. That, I just want to and, let and you Paul never, and you're usually not reasonable. It is not true. It is true. Do, do, can I list a series of other things that could be done? Israel must be isolated on the world stage. Multiple countries, including South Africa, have expelled Israeli ambassador. Ireland could do that. That would create a pressure, an environment. We would be the first European country to do it. There is talk of it in terms of Belgium, in terms of the Spanish state. The question will be put on the agenda. Isolating Israel. And what we consistently Israel. hear, That's and Lisa will, Lisa, we could Lisa will say that... We could stop spending money 
to Israeli armaments corporations. We've spent millions of euros of Irish public money to Israeli armaments companies. Are you in favour of stopping that? First of all, is that something else that we could do? Can I respond? Are you going to keep shouting across the table? Is that something we could do? So in terms of our aid to Palestine, we are one of the few countries continue actually just specifically on that, Lisa, because I know that we talked about EU and Israeli uh, trade agreements and that, you know, our hands are tied and there's only so much we can do and we have to act with the EU on this. But there are specific specific deals. So we we are looking at... that we have uniquely with Israel that we could do well, something we are, about we are, if, if, if that was something that the, the, the state wished to do. When it comes to international trade with third countries, that is done through the EU. We have an EU-Israel agreement in place and we have asked for a review of that. Which and we've asked for sanctions as well in terms of occupying forces in the West Bank. Are you going to answer about the armaments company? And we've also are you said going to that if it does not move at an EU level, we will do what we can domestically to invoke those sanctions. So as I said, everything that can be done, we are doing. But so still but millions shouting, of... Millions shouting of, and banging not, the table, Paul, millions, going to solve anything. So in we're going to continue to give taxpayers money to Israeli like armaments companies. And, we're, and you say like, we're doing everything we can when we're giving money to the companies if, that produce the drones the Israeli, that are like involved in attacking the people. Don't lie not, to people we are not that we're doing everything arms. we can. We are not, not providing arms to Israel. No, Come on now. but we're giving money to the Israeli armaments you're companies. Not being, you're not being clear. We are, Lisa, we are do you want to respond? Do you want to respond to that charge? I'm trying to respond. We are not providing arms to Israel. And in terms of the ambassador, that's what you're suggesting. We've given 10 million euros almost to Israeli armaments corporations. We have bought drones from Elbit. But you're, suge- you're trying are you to saying suggest that you, you are trying to suggest we are providing arms to Israel no, and we are not, not doing right. that. So okay, there we are. We'll Israel. have to leave it there we're for now. We're buying arms from Israel and that's scandalous. No. And my, thanks, my thanks to Paul and to Lisa and to Paul O'Brien, Executive Director of Amnesty US, who joined us uh, via Skype and Matt Fry at the top of the programme. Now, coming up next, an update from Laura Wickham on her husband Yasser El Jabouri after charges were dropped after his detention in Iraq. Do stay with us. Welcome back. Well, earlier today, all charges were dropped against Irish citizen Yasser El Jabouri in Iraq. Mr. El Jabouri was detained at Baghdad Airport earlier this week after he travelled there to visit family. We're joined now by Yasser's wife, Laura Wickham, um, who joins us from their home in Dublin. Laura, thank you for being with us. Um, you learned that charges against your husband were dropped, which is very welcome news. You've spoken to him by video call this evening. Is that right? How's he doing? Uh, yeah, he's okay. Um, I had a really brief call this afternoon and then we had another call um, kind of later in the evening before the kids went to bed. And that was great because he got to see the kids. So that was great. Um, they, um, they were, it was very, very emotional for Yasser and for myself. Um, the kids were excited because they haven't seen him. Usually when he goes away, they'd be on every day. Um, so there was a bit of a fight for the phone with him, with them. Um, but I suppose it was great, but then it also really emphasised how much we need him home and want him home. What did he say to you about the past few days and what he's gone through in Iraq? He didn't really talk. He didn't really talk about that. Um, he just, he's very emotional. He's very tired. Um, and as a, as, as a, well, when I, as am I, um, we didn't really talk about that much. Um, I, I just kept asking, he's okay. And, you know, telling him I loved him and those kind of things. Um, 
where he was going, had he eaten, that kind of thing. He's out on bail for two to three days was the um, information that they gave. And again, this has been consistent throughout um, this whole ordeal that the information is is always kind of wishy-washy. Like the, the paperwork is complete on, on his part and on his solicitor's part. And um, so I don't know what the other two to three days are about. But anyway... Hopefully it's just a formality and he will, they close for the weekend tomorrow, the next day. And then Sunday he's back in court to get his possessions and his passport back. And hopefully they'll follow through and that's it. And he gets them and he gets to the plane and comes home. Um, that's what I'm pushing for. Um, I have a fantastic solicitor, Keelan Gallagher, and she she's pushing for it as well. And I'm very appreciative to the DFA and to mm-hmm. the Tonish staff for everything they're doing. Um, but, we really are pushing for that. Like, as Keelan said, it's it's almost dangerous at the moment. Like, because in dropping the charges, the pressure can be off. Um, but actually, this is the exact time to put the pressure on. Get him home. Get the passport. Why doesn't he have his passport? Mm-hmm. Um, he should have it, and he should be on a plane tonight. So hopefully. He will be on a plane on Sunday. You thanked uh, the DFA and the Thornish the Michal Martin there. I know that you've spoken that that, me, that Minister Martin was in touch with you um, throughout yeah. all of this. Do you believe that the Irish government um, intervened in some way, or that there was an intervention there that helped this case? Yes, I I, I think um, I'm very very grateful. I know I know that that I, I believe that that's the reason that the charges were dropped. I think um, I'm so appreciative that Tonishta he I, he got in contact with the foreign minister in Iraq, and um, I believe that that had a great impact on what happened today, and the constant pressure from the consulate in Amman. Um, to the Iraqi authorities, I believe, has had an impact, and that's where. I think that's why the, the charges have been dropped. But again, it needs to continue. It, we can't take the foot off the pedal. It needs to continue so that he's on a plane at home where he should be. Mm-hmm. And Laura, um, Yasser is an Irish citizen. He's been living in Ireland for 16 years. You have a family, three children together. Uh, he's an advocate who's working to expose corruption in Iraq. Have you heard specifically why he was arrested on this occasion? Um, the I, I the press release from the his solicitors said that the reason he was arrested was, um, for um, I, I don't I, it is specific in in the reason, but I don't know the wording of it. I, but as I understand, it's defamation. It's like um, uh, an article two two six or something. But um, I understand it to be defamation. Um, I just don't know the the wording around it. But linked to his anti-corruption work and his, his being a very yeah. strong advocate against corruption yeah, as he sees it. Yeah, a campaigner for human mm-hmm. rights and anti-corruption. That's what, that's what he does. That's what he's good at. And um, yes, I think, I don't know, but I imagine it is in response to this. All right. Well, Laura, um, thank you very much for speaking to us tonight. And we do hope you see Yasser very soon and you're all reunited as a family. So we appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Claire. I really appreciate your time too. Now, coming up after the break, we discuss if the Dublin Metrolink is a worthwhile investment.
Welcome back. Oris Anukdron has issued a statement tonight confirming President Michael D. Higgins, having felt unwell, was brought to hospital for precautionary tests this evening. The initial test results have been positive. According to the statement, President Higgins will remain in hospital overnight. He is in excellent spirits, we're told, and has thanked the medical staff for the care that he has received. That's the very latest from Oris Anukdron tonight. Now, the 9.5 billion euro Dublin Metrolink is planned to run mostly underground from Swords to Charlemont, a distance of 18.8 kilometres. Fianna Fáil Senator Lisa Chambers and People Before Profit TD Paul Murphy have stayed on with me to discuss this. And we're also joined by Green Party Councillor Michael Pidgeon. You're very welcome along to the programme tonight, Michael. Um, to talk about this, the announcement of a Metrolink, it was welcomed in, in that it was so long overdue, but some people have questioned um, the cost of this and the impact that it's going to have on the city for a system that essentially will run from city centre to one part of the capital. Um, for those critics, what do you say to them tonight? I think that criticism was probably true 80 years ago, 60 years ago, 40 years ago. It was true while cities around Europe were also building metros, multiple metro lines, all going in one direction, all costing at the time a huge amount of money. But I think in virtually all of those cities, they're not going to regret having built it because they see the value that something like the metro brings. It's a huge capacity, even running at a half maximum capacity. It can move about 20,000 people an hour. Um, it's, 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 it's simply something that Dublin, I think Dubliners want and understand the need for, especially when they travel, but it's something that Dublin really, really needs because the idea of us piling more and more transport onto our roads network, it's just not a runner. Most cities of our size and certainly of our wealth have a metro and it's, it's I think the idea that some people have suggested that we would delay this further, postpone it, redesign it, good God, no. We need to just build the metro. We've been talking about this for way too long. Um, we have heard the argument that there is a bus network already in place serving that part of the city that's going from Swords and Dublin Airport to the city centre. Um, what would you say to that, given that, I suppose, expanding the bus network would be a lot less invasive and intrusive on a capital city, which, fair enough, if this was something that was built and conceived decades ago, might be an easier option than building a whole underground system at this point in the city's history. Yeah, I, I think the bus network is brilliant and the bus network is getting better. But the bus is probably the primary form of public transport I use. I love it. And we should keep putting more money and resources into that, absolutely. But again, you can't match the capacity of the metro where you're talking about mm. 20,000 people an hour at half capacity versus um, hundreds of buses it would take to deliver that kind of just the sheer ability to move people. The buses, if you look at cities um, like, say, London, I lived in London for three years, they have a really, really good, they don't call it a metro, they call it a tube, but it's the same kind of idea. They have a great bus network as well, and you use that for some journeys, sometimes it's more convenient, but by and large, when there is a tube or a metro, people take it because it's quick, it's easy, it's not held up at traffic lights, it break down, breaks down far, far less. And in this case of the Metrolink, it's also going to be automated. So there's going to be fewer issues with driver availability and so on. All right. OK, this all sounds incredibly positive, Lisa. And I know that it has been warmly welcomed by many people. But people will worry when it comes to capital projects. We don't do them without a very expensive price tag being attached. So at the moment, 9.5 billion euro, 
is what um, we are being told. But we saw what happened with the Children's Hospital and we, saw, we see how budgets simply run out of control um, when the government takes hold of, of capital projects. What would you say to that? And how can we guarantee that, in fact, it won't cost an awful lot more um, by the time that it's actually built decades after people started talking about it? Yeah, so I'm supportive of the project. I think it's good for our capital city and I think there is an expectation in the capital that our airport would be linked by rail to the city centre. So that, that's a good thing. Um, and it won't be without its challenges delivering the project because it will upset some homeowners and residents along the way, as is the nature of major capital projects. It's estimated to cost somewhere between seven and 12 billion. So nine is the kind of the midpoint and they are based on today's prices. So the longer we delay in building it, the more expensive inevitably it will get. In terms of the overrun of capital projects, if you look at the Dunkettle Interchange, for example, that was delivered on time and in budget. Very little discussion around that because that was a good news element of it. Um, some capital projects, have there have been major overspends. There does need to be some flexibility. When you deliver a project on mm. a scale like that, it can be very difficult to put an absolute price tag on it. Yeah. The one thing I will say about the cost of it, the 12 billion, if it comes in at that, or nine if it's got the midpoint. Well, nine, so, is, nine is what we're sort of being told. So, is they, they, they I mean, when 12 is being said, you worry that it's going to run to 15. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's always going to be a concern. Will, will it run over? And when you start digging into the ground, do you discover something that has to be dealt with? The same as if you're building even a small house, if you find something, it needs to be dealt with. The one point I will make is that this is a major investment in Dublin, and that's great. But when we look at things like, say, Galway, for example, that's been choked by traffic and no ring road, that needs to be delivered. When we look at the Western Rail Corridor in Mayo that we've been advocating for for decades, that's going to cost... So who's about been in government, Lisa? I mean, this is the big question well, about I'm, all uh, these, you I, know, I, I, infrastructure projects and, that, and that, we, that, that, are, that are very long overdue. So I'm, I, I suppose I'm making the pitch in that that project is estimated to cost 600 million, which is a fraction of the, the Metrolink. There, there's a big demand for rail projects right across the country. We're going green, people want rail options, they want to get out of their cars. It, there is an onus and an obligation on government to deliver rail for people so they have the option to use it. Paul, do you have confidence that this can be delivered on time, albeit long overdue, <laughs> and within I mean, budget? On time is, uh, is quite a way to call it. I think you had a minister mm. in 2002 who promised that it would be completed by 2007, if I was correct, back in the day when it was called Metro North. Um, so I hope it can be delivered on current uh, schedule. We should deliver it as quick as is possible. Um, obviously, like most people in the country, I'd say, looking at the experience of the Children's Hospital, I would be concerned that the price tag will, will rise. How do you deal with that? Um, I think one way you deal with it is we, we really should have a state construction company um, to deal with major infrastructural projects, as opposed to having this process where you have a bidding process, you have underbids by major construction companies, then they hike it up afterwards. Or in this case, one of the bad parts of this is that 25% of it is going to be done through a public-private partnership, which means involving the private sector. And generally it means public taking the risk, private companies get okay. to take uh, the profit. So it should be delivered 100% public and ideally by a state right. construction Michael, company. Uh, to come to you on that, because cost is going to be a central theme, apart from all the other issues that local residents may have with you know, noise pollution and the building work and the impact that it may have on their property or in local businesses. You know, what are you going to do about that as a councillor? Um, do you foresee those challenges? Yes, and, and you have to be straight with people. You can't kind of plumb people. You have to be honest. There are always going to be challenges in a construction project. 
and you don't... we've heard from some residents that the information to date has been drip drip. They haven't received all the information or the, the, the impact assessment and all of that. Sure. I, I, with this, that comes be, with the project honest, on the, this on size. The four or five years I've been on the council, I've never seen a project that hasn't come with people talking about a, a lack of information or the, how they need more clarity. I understand that. And you can't dismiss those concerns, but there is an element of kind of eggs, eggs and omelettes here that you do unfortunately have to engage in construction projects that cause disruption, that cause noise, because the alternative is just doing nothing and wondering why the problems in the country are stacking up. So I lived for three years right beside Houston Rail Station. At 3 a.m. they would angle grind the lines. It was incredibly loud, it would wake you up. It wasn't nice, but ultimately we had a good rail service. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and sometimes that's the price you have to pay. So there you, will be disruption. What do you say, actually, to what necessary. Paul has to say about, you know, the whole tendering process and all of that and getting people on board, um, as well as, you know, the, the, the budget that, that could overrun very easily, as we've seen. Absolutely. Um, that, that there should be measures maybe to prevent that happening in this instance on a key infrastructural project. Yeah, public procurement is really frustrating. It's very slow. It can be very expensive. And as we've seen with some projects, it overruns. But I'd caution about transport projects have done pretty well. John Kettle Interchange was yeah. one you mentioned. But the Lewis came in when it was originally done on budget. Now, it came in eight weeks later, but I think we can all forgive that now. And the Lewis Cross City came in earlier than expected on budget. Okay, well, we would take eight weeks late, um, but uh, <laughs> we'll have to see where it all goes from here. That is it from us. Uh, my thanks to Lisa Chambers, to Paul Murphy, and to Michael Pigeon, who's joined us from all the late team here. Good night. Take care.